You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Most towns seem nice on the surface. But at night, it's a whole other story. Drugs, prostitution, murder, every town's got them. Everyone's guilty of something. Headed out west? East. It's your car? Can't drive like that. Tire's flat. It's driving fine last night. How about staying on? Place could use a fresh face. You find everything you're looking for? Let me know if you hear or see anything, okay? Have you forgotten the reason as to why we are here? After tomorrow night, we are not going to have to worry about money for a very long time. You still on that Flagstaff case? Between that and the Dunbar heist, our hands are full. Here's to um, getting rich. You're leaving. I'm not leaving while there's customers here. We are not customers. There's been a snag. I won't say a word. I swear I won't go to the cops. Well, that went better than expected. Picked the wrong motel, didn't you? Yeah, that sounds about right. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. My name is Mike White. I am your host here on a special talking about The Frontier. With me this evening are Jared Case. Hello again. Oren Shai. Hello. And Webb Wilcoxon. Happy to be here. We are talking about The Frontier, a movie from what? It was released in 2015. It is now available on VOD. Shortly will be available on DVD. And it is what I would consider, I suppose, a a neo-noir directed by Orrin co-written by Orrin and Webb. I am uh, very excited to talk about this with you guys this evening. There was a special screening down at NoirCon in Philadelphia a couple weeks ago where we got to see the film. The uh, What would you guys call it? The Philadelphia premiere of the movie? That's fair. The movie actually, we premiered uh, it at South by Southwest 2015, but our actual release date is 2016 uh, today. A day that will live in infamy, I'm I'm afraid here, as I sit here and refresh the election results while we discuss this rather bleak movie, it might be a bleak future for our country here. Let's hope not. Yeah. I will not try to come up with something better than what one of your guys' stars, Jim Beaver, wrote about this film. And I will say that it's a story of Lane, a young woman on the run from the law, who turns up at the frontier, an isolated desert diner and motel. She's offered a job by Luann, the owner, and, hoping to lose herself in the obscurity of the place, accepts the job. But soon Lane realizes she has stumbled into an even bigger and more dangerous situation. A fantastic beginning to... A rather tense uh, film, and I was really glad to see some really strong female characters in this film. I mean, you have some some strong roles all the way around, but to follow Lane, who's uh, played by Jocelyn Donahue, fantastic. Just a, a great role from her. I don't think I've ever seen her in anything before, but I really look forward to seeing more of her. 
Yeah, she's she's absolutely incredible. Um, I would check out. I think she gives a she gives a phenomenal performance in uh, House of the Devil, the Thai West film. And she, I mean, Jocelyn for me, she is cinema. She moves in a cinematic way. She her expressions are cinematic. I, you know, if I can find an equivalent, I will say she's an Anna Karina. You know, she might look a little more seventies, like you know, kind of like more like a Jessica Harper or a Karen Allen, uh, Margot Kidder. She's got that going for her. But she has a unique cinematic quality that I can see with uh, actresses like Anna Karina, where it's enough to just point the camera at her and her face is so expressive and so cinematic that it just does everything for you. Well, I suppose that's good since you said in the 70s, if she has that 70s vibe to her. Absolutely. Why the 70s? Why did you guys decide to to make a period piece when that has to make it, what, 10 times, 20 times harder than shooting a modern piece? The reason we chose the 70s uh, was because it was really the most fitting for the story. When we started, we, we looked at various periods. We thought at some point it could be the 1950s. We thought it could be contemporary. But the 1970s just, it seemed to fit the story best. And, and making it contemporary would have compromised the integrity of it. For example... And just to give a little background, the characters uh, in the film, uh, like the the criminals who are meeting up in this in this diner, we base them on on a lot of Hollywood archetypes. Um, Kaylee Lynch's character Luann is somewhat based on you know kind of a Gloria Swanson, uh, Norma Desmond type thing, uh, type of character, or or Betty Davis. Jamie Harris's character is based on Errol Flynn. Jim Jim Beaver's character is really inspired by Lee Marvin. We felt like those characters don't really have a place in society today where in the 1970s, they can still exist and only can they still exist, but they're at the sort of like past their prime, but they're still hanging, which is where all these characters are in the film. They're, they're past their time looking for a last hurrah, if you say. So the 70s just seemed to, to fit that lane, played by Jocelyn Donahue, unlike the rest of the characters who are very much old Hollywood archetypes. Um, Lane was designed to be a, a character very much of her time. And she's also somebody who is lost. She's a young woman and she's completely lost. And the 1970s, especially being a period of such uh, political uh, turmoil and a shattering of the American dream in a way, you know, after the 60s, Vietnam, She's a character really looking for an answer, but there are no answers. And that also felt like a very, very 70s theme to explore. So everything just kind of pointed that that's the era that it should, should be in. And, um, you know, we also thought that um, 70s cars are not as expensive as they really are. The way that I have described this film the past is as a retro neo-noir it's retro in that it's set during this 1970s and made to look as if it was made in the 1970s. But the noir aspects from the 30s and 40s really come for, come to the fore in terms of the characters and their motivations. As you said, these are people of the past and it's a past that already existed in 1970. Can you talk about the influences that brought you to this type of story, whether it was uh, something that Oren started with and, and Webb brought in, or if it was just happened organically to create this kind of a story. 
Orin and I, we met at a screening of Frankenhooker that our, um, our mutual friend Roy Frumkis was hosting and, uh, Roy introduced us and, you know, Roy said, Oh yeah, I think you guys would have a lot in common. So we ended up meeting for coffee pretty quickly. We kind of figured that we, 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 we enjoy working on something together. And, uh, so the, you know, we, we both came with ideas with, with different ideas and they, uh, Oren had this idea about writing something about old route 66, uh, something to take place in the Southwest. I had an idea for uh, a bag of money story, uh, uh, kind of a heist story. And we, um, very quickly sort of found a way to put those two together. And, uh, that became the, um, sort of the foundation of, of the story. And then we, you know, we spent about seven months outlining the story, um, before writing the script. One thing that happened when Webb and I met is that we realized that we really, uh, we share a lot of the same influences, uh, and we like a lot of the same things. And when we started talking, we brought up a lot of stories. I mean, Kansas City Confidential, uh, was one example for, you know, a story, a story of that type. Uh, the postman always rings twice, uh, specifically the book for me. I was never really, it's one of my favorite books and I was never really, I don't think it's been made quite as well as it could be made. Um, I think the book is much better than any of the adaptations. Uh, so the postman always rings twice was a very, a very big influence in terms of the setting and the desert, you know, the kind of that, that dusty, you know, the dusty noirish feeling. That, that the movie had came uh, came to, to me at least from there, and and a lot of the influences came from both the literature. I mean, I, I I'm an avid collector of uh, of vintage paperbacks and pulps, so there's a lot of you know from Day Keen to William Campbell Cult, you know David Goodis. I mean, it's 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 all these influences sort of like tied together into uh, the cinema aspect of it. And when we started talking about it as a, as a 1970s film, it also it sort of like flowed into the 1970s uh, noirs, which were you know any anything from the Long Goodbye to Night Moves to uh, I mean there's there's a million there's a lot of influences from Robert Altman's Three Women, which doesn't it's, it happens not to be noir but uh, very influential. I like to say that it's somewhere between Three Women and Blue Velvet for me, but. Um, the influence has definitely progressed as the movie was going. Like there was one thing when we were plotting it and structuring and coming up with ideas. And that is a lot of the influences that went into creating the, the script, which is, you know, basically content in itself, but there's also content in the style. And this is a very stylish film. And in order to recreate the look of the 1970s, there were a lot of things that you had to, know about production during the 1970s and bring into the the production of the film. Can you talk a little bit about that? You, you were saying retro before, and while technically it might be retro because it's, it's a film set in the 1970s and we are not in the 1970s, one thing that I wanted to avoid in terms of feel, in terms of atmosphere, is the idea of retro. I never wanted the film to feel like it is a contemporary movie about the 70s, I wanted it to feel like it's a movie that was ripped out of the 1970s. It's not too much of a challenge because that's kind of that. Those are the movies that inspire me. So that's just automatically how I think. 
And you try to surround yourself with people like that, like Jake Hytel, our, our cinematographer, uh, who's also very much into that and can put himself in that state of mind. So it doesn't become about the period, but of the period. The one important, very important thing is we shot on film, uh, Super 16 millimeter in this case, which was a crucial element for me. Um, and we shot a lot with, uh, with zoom lenses, which gave it also a, a very 1970s feel. There's different lensing in the day and nighttime in the film where like the day, the daytime is supposed to feel more like, you know, an Altman film, for example, or like a, sort of like one of those dusty noirs. And the nighttime is supposed to feel a little more like a Robert McGuinness pulp cover. So we, you know, we changed the lensing according, according to those things, but. Uh, technically, technically, that's that's really what what we did, and and it was very important to get everybody uh, on the same page and and knowing what kind of movie we're making and and where where like where it sits. And you're anticipating questions from me as they come. You shot on sixteen, which you said, which is very near and dear to my heart, but that has got to pose a lot of problems in production, given the limited number of cameras that are still out there and the limited uh, amount of stock that's out there. So can you talk a little bit about how working with film has changed your process from the shorts that you did into doing the feature? I've shot everything on film. Film is uh, is my comfort zone. I haven't. I made one documentary digitally, but otherwise, everything I've shot since film school has been on film. Uh, my shorts are on film. I, I I just love that medium and that format. So it's actually not. It doesn't feel more challenging to me. It's actually much more freeing. Film requires you to hone your craft, and it requires you to know what you're doing because you can't just burn through material. I personally don't find it more complicated than digital because it's it's really the same process if you plan out. You just don't shoot as much. And why why do you need to shoot that much? Don't cover a scene from every angle. Just cover it from the angles you need. You know, if if you can shoot a scene scene in a cinematic way from like from you know from two angles, why cover it from six or seven angles and then figure it out in the editing? So for me. Shooting on film puts me in that state of mind, first of all, and that's beyond the fact that I think it's aesthetically superior, but that's my opinion. That's, you know, to each his own. It's not much more complicated in terms of equipment. It's actually a little, uh, in terms of cameras, it's actually a little easier because uh, it's not as, as much in demand. So when you go to Panavision, they have those. Um, and in terms of film, I mean, Kodak still makes it. You just, you go and you buy the, movie, the film from Kodak. I mean, it's, it is made to shooting on film is made to seem like it's a much bigger deal than it is. It's not really if it's a choice and it's a choice that if you make, you can do and you don't need like a crazy shooting on film, maybe 35, maybe is a little more expensive, but shooting 16, not much more expensive than shooting high end digital. Amen. What were the response from the the cast and crew uh, as you told? Did you tell them up front that you were shooting on film, and did that have um, any effect on their working with the film actors? They had to make choices that had to do with working with film instead of digital. Everybody absolutely loved the idea of shooting on film because uh, my experience is that I'm making a generalization. I'm sure this is not true, but like overall. But in my experience. Almost everyone who works with film prefers film. 
a lot a lot of people end up shooting it digitally because uh, it's more convenient. You know, you you get to see your footage immediately. But I, I found the actors really liking it. There's a tension in the air when you shoot on film because you know you're burning money. And when you work with actors who are pros and they know what they're doing, they come in, they're prepared, and they do their scene and they get it in, in you know, two or three takes because they're aware of the fact that you don't have a limitless amount of footage. I, I, that's why I think, I really think it, it forces everybody to be more attentive to what they do and, and to their craft, uh, which every person we worked with really did phenomenally well. Um, I found, I found the response to be very, very positive from everybody working on the movie in terms of once I said we're shooting it on film. And you mentioned working with pros. You have a real mix of experienced independent film actors, but also you bring in some people that have been acting for decades. Uh, Kelly Lynch, who was in Drugstore Cowboy back in the mid-80s, and Jim Beaver, who's probably best known for his work on TV, on uh, Deadwood, and on Supernatural. But he's been on just about everything, and he's got his own fan base. How did you put a cast together, and how did you, as a first-time feature filmmaker, reach out to the people with more experience and, and get them to come on board? There isn't much of a story in the process itself in terms of it was, it was a fairly standard casting process. Um, as a low-budget production, we, you know, I, did not, like, I didn't audition them. I just made offers um, to actors that I liked and waited for them to read the script. And once they read the script, I had a meeting. And I had visual boards made uh, with a lot of a lot of the influences uh, so they would get an idea of the feel and the look of the movie. And those those actually had a lot of those pop covers and Robert McGinnis, Robert McGuire as, as inspiration. Um, and I explained to them what that is going to be. Specifically with, with both Kelly and, and Jim, I think, I feel like I really bonded with them over their love of cinema. They both really love film history and have an appreciation for it. I, I know with Kelly, we had a lot of uh, conversations about Mae West, actually. And, and Jim is, a, Jim is essentially a film historian. Um, it's, I, I, I chatted with someone at NoirCon about Jim and he said regarding Jim's knowledge of film, if Jim doesn't know it, it's not worth knowing. So it was, we, you know, we, we bonded over that and they signed on to do the film. And I, and I have to say that, and Webb, I mean, Webb could attest to that. He was, he was on set as a director, definitely as a first time feature director. I feel so fortunate and so lucky that we gathered such, uh, not just talented, extremely talented group of actors, but also lovely people. Each of these, each of these actors, they they were so generous and so nice, and we shot in crazy conditions. I mean, we were in the desert in January, and you know, we would shoot in the middle of the night on on a remote, like California desert road with nowhere to go, and they were dressing like flimsy clothing, like barely any layers. Especially uh, Kelly Lynch. This is a uh, during the final, like one of the final showdowns where she's, she's kind of, she's all dressed up. Jocelyn as well. They were, they were freezing and they were so nice about it. And instead of the harsh conditions of filming causing tension, they brought everybody together. 
as a as a company. That was really just a, a crazy stroke of luck of, of ending up with uh, such a generous and, and phenomenal group of people. So you mentioned that uh, you and Webb were both on set, which is uh, somewhat unusual for the, the screenwriter to be there. Uh, Webb, can you talk about uh, your experiences and why you were there, how you'd helped? You know, I felt really fortunate to be on set. It's not a common thing that screenwriters, actually, I think Donna, our uh, producer, said we usually chase the screenwriters off set, you know, <laughs> uh, but they, they really made me feel welcome. And uh, I, I was well behaved. I, I waited till the, the right moments to uh, to give my input when necessary. Um, I really was there for support for, for Orin. Uh, you know, we had spent... Uh, you know, months outlining it, you know, a couple years, uh, doing n- numerous drafts of it. And then when you get on set, um, little things arise, which, uh, need adjusting. Um, you realize the location isn't exactly conducive to what this, how the scene was written. And so you have to do some, you know, on the spot changes. Then there's just other little things that pop up. It was, uh, it was a cold shoot. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was rather, uh, rather cold, but, um, you know, we, uh, yeah, we all work together and, 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 and yeah, I was, um, really happy to be there because, uh, there is nothing, yeah, there's nothing like seeing, um, seeing something that you've been working on for years finally taking shape. And, you know, I was, you know, so happy with how things were, uh, coming out, um, that, uh, yeah, that I was, yeah, really happy to be there. It was a very, invaluable help to me to have web on set because there's the, you do have so many instances where rewrites have to have to get done and they need to get done quick if you're lucky they need to get done two days in advance if you're not they need to get done for like the next scene you're shooting and having web there and able to take care of that while so I can focus on you know working with the actors, working with uh, Jay, our cinematographer, was it was a huge help. Right? I I use the word invaluable. I think that's that's that. So when we were talking about this at NoirCon, we realized. So we we've talked about uh, how the script was written and the t- amount of time it took to get into production and, and set everything up. But you have a very interesting and intricate distribution history after South by Southwest uh, as much as you can feel comfortable telling us about the the sorted story. Well, just don't name names. I don't want to dwell on it because I, you know, we, we did have a winding road, but I'm also very, very happy where we ended up. I would rather focus on, you know, on the positive after South by Southwest, which was really a phenomenal experience could not have imagined premiering the movie in a better in a better venue. We went through, you know, through the grind of of trying to sell it, which every indie movie does. That just happens. You have you have your sales agent and you're working and you're trying to get uh you're trying to get a distributor. And we got a distributor. I mean it's online, so I feel like I can say it, but we we ended up uh originally selling the movie to Alchemy and shortly after Alchemy folded. And I have no, I mean, every single person we, we worked with at Alchemy and, and communicated with us was really nice and very supportive, uh, and gracious. It was beyond them what happened to the company that came from very high above. We took the movie back, uh, when that happened and we looked for a new distribution. We ended up with uh, finding a home with Kino, with Kino Lorber, who I was, uh, kind of pushing for, 
very early on, almost right after South by because I love Kino Lorber and I, and I'm not just saying that because they're releasing my film, they have such a love for cinema. And when you look at their catalog, I, I for me, like I'm, I'm really, I really feel honored to be in that catalog and, and we're getting a Blu-ray and we're getting a DVD and it's like, that can go on my shelf right between the Blu-ray of The Long Goodbye and G.W. Papp's Diary of a Lost Girl. Both movies extremely influential on the, sorry, influential on the frontier, uh, both released by Kino. So I, I kind of feel like through that whole process, which was definitely a winding road that had a lot of ups and downs, you know, I, I'm not going to cover that. We, we really landed with, for, for me, the ideal home for this film. So at this point, really, I mean, that's all kind of far in the past. So this is my, my energy personally is going towards, but look where we are now. Webb, I want to know a little bit about your background. Uh, what's your history with film? Well, I uh, studied film at the School of Visual Arts. I wanted to be a writer, and but you know, upon graduating, uh, I uh, realized I had no life experience and I had nothing to write about. <laughs> so uh, I ended up making educational films uh, with my friend Ian for a number of years. It was a day job. Uh, and this uh, led us to making a feature documentary uh, called A Time to Dance. The film was well received. We got a chance to work with the great Ruby D. You know, the film took three and a half years to make. And during that time, you know, I went through some dark personal stuff and, uh, making my way through those difficult times, it finally gave me something to write about. Um, I started using archetypes from folklore and fairy tales to explore my fears and, and dig into the things that, you know, trouble me. Uh, then I was, uh, then seduced into the world of theater. And I, I became a member of um, the Labyrinth Theater Company, which uh, became sort of a second family to me. I discovered that uh, the theater was a great training ground for a writer because there's so much time spent on play development and rehearsals and working closely with actors. Also, like during previews, you can see your work on its feet in front of an audience, uh, gauge what works, and then you can rewrite what doesn't and then put up a new version the next night. Uh, yeah, I can't uh, overestimate the uh, the importance of of working with that theater company. And and you know, for a number of years, one of the artistic directors was Philip Seymour Hoffman. And under his leadership, the company produced my first play, the uh, Fairy Tale Project. And I was fortunate enough to work with Phil uh, on that, and uh, I learned a great deal from him. So um, from that point, I, I wrote a number of works for the stage. And uh, over the you know, last five years, I've returned to my first love, which is writing movies. What was your working relationship like with Orrin as you guys are? Because you talked about how you outlined this for a long time before you kind of finally got it all nailed down into place. You know, as I said before, uh, Orrin and I did not know each other when we first started working on this. We'd meet um, about twice a week for coffee, and we would just start walk, uh, walking ourselves through the story. So really starting with um, the beginning, and we outlined basically in chronological order, So, um, which was um, really kind of a great way to do it because um, we just we stepped through each beat trying to figure out what lane our main character would do next. And uh, that brought us into some situations where we, we would get stuck. Um, we'd get uh, stranded in the middle of a scene for weeks uh, where we didn't know how to resolve or how to get her out of that situation. And uh, by sitting there, 
uh, weeks on end, finally an idea would come and uh, we'd find our way out and it would lead to discovery of a whole new you know, a uh, strain of, of plot. Um, it was, uh, it was a, you know, uh, really, you know, one of the best, uh, collaborations I've had because, because we were becoming friends while we were, you know, writing it and, um, getting to know each other and that fed its way into the script. Then over, you know, I think that was, yeah, seven months that we outlined it. Uh, then after we, uh, finished the outline, I sat down and did a pass of the script which after having a detailed outline, you know, did not take me very long, sent that to Oren and then he did his pass. And then over, you know, several months, we, we, we threw back drafts, you know, back and forth until we got to a place that we felt comfortable uh, sharing it with uh, the outside world. Can you talk about pacing in the film? Cause it really is a, a slow burn and whether or not you built that as the ideal, or if you knew you were dealing with a budget a smaller budget for the film and that was part of the process i don't think the pacing specifically came from budget concerns we had this idea of the the tension that's built by by waiting also when you look at a lot of those movies from definitely from the 70s they're slower to pick up you you get time you know it's kind of like it's a long build up and then it hits you over the head you know and and the film as well you really are with Lane, and the idea is that you're with her point of view. You're looking at everybody. You don't know what's going on. So the pacing of the film really follows Lane's state of mind and where she is. All you know is what she knows, and she's a voyeur. So the film looks at people with her and and discovers who they are with her, and that's a process that takes that takes time. But once you know, shit hits the fan uh, and she gets really entangled in the situation, the film never lets go. And I think that's that's one thing that we, we definitely did, that you have this, this buildup that does take, take its time. And once it starts uh, going up, it never goes back down uh, until the very end. But it's, it's, it really just keeps getting crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier to get a whiff her experience because it's it's very much told from her point of view. It's interesting that you describe her as a voyeur, an observer, because the camera and as you use it in the film is very much a voyeur in terms of Jocelyn Lane, uh, Lane in the film. And and you mentioned earlier the zoom that you use, which was used more often in the seventies. The way that you use it, especially in the beginning of the film, as you focus in on her character. It's she's really inscrutable at the beginning of the film. So you're you're trying to burrow a little deeper and figure out exactly what it is that she's thinking. But by the end of the film, you're using the same zoom. However, it seems to isolate her from the rest of the characters in the film. And it changes the the shot composition from this this three shot or whatever down to just this one woman alone in the situation. I mean, zoom, you know, the zoom lens is uh is a fantastic tool. I feel like filmmakers kind of took it out of their toolbox in a way. We chose to go with the zoom because there is, there, there's a sense of peeking into something, of, of looking at something from afar when you zoom in. Well, if you're doling in, you're walking towards something. It's a much more confrontational uh, movement. 
the film with Lane is really much more of an observer, uh, observational film. For me, the zoom lens uh, emulates that a little better, and it does give that voyeuristic feel to it. And I, I'm really of the state of mind that film film is voyeurism. They're inseparable. I agree with you that the zoom into into Lane specifically does create a different a different feel at the beginning of the end, which I I mean I think that that a large part of it is is Jocelyn and Jocelyn's face and what she does with it. And that, that, that slow movement does give you a more contemplative opportunity to study the character from in a way that I don't know if just like a medium shot would do. Jared touched on the, uh, the budget and, and pro- probably some of the budgetary restrictions that you guys were working up against. But I am curious, how do you find financing for a, uh, a noir film set in the 1970s. I mean, you've kind of got a, a two strikes against you with something like that. I found that when you want to do a, a, a period noir, really all you have to say is that and the wallet just, so they just ask you to write a check. They, they, they throw money at you. No, I'm kidding. I, I mean, I can't, I, you know, I, I don't really want to find, it's hard to find financing period. I don't even know if it's a matter of, um, you're making a noir, you're making a period film, financing is difficult. We went around with the script for a long time. And, and uh, I mean, I, I essentially moved from uh, New York to L.A. when we when we started, actually, like when when we finished the treatment, I moved from New York to L.A. I lived in New York for 10 years. And once I got to L.A., I started taking meetings and talking to people. And, and it took a while. It took about a year, a year and a half. But uh, we, we just ended up securing like, you know, getting backers to believe in it. And after about a year and a half of looking, we set out to write a low budget film and we thought, okay, we'll put it at a single location um, with just a you know small group of people. I mean, we, we really thought we were, we were writing a low budget story, but it ended up being much more uh, expensive than we, than we thought it would be because it's period uh, it's it's a single location, but it's a specific one. It's got to be both a motel and a diner, and all the characters have to arrive there somehow in vehicles. So now we need to have, you know, seven vehicles, one for each character. Period. Uh, these things really started to to add up. So it was a real challenge to to do this as a low budget. It was low budget, but um, we 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 certainly um, uh, learned a few lessons. I think on exactly what is a low budget, and certainly having an ensemble piece, you know, where you have you know seven characters in a scene, uh, and especially like long scenes, ten minute uh, scenes, uh, ended up being yeah. A, a, quite a challenge to do and um you know uh, thankfully we got it all together but it was it was not as easy as it seemed when we were on it that's for sure <laughs> so i know that it is now available on vod and shortly it will be available on blu-ray and i was kind of wondering if you guys could talk about the production of the blu-ray are there going to be extras you got some director's commentary on there what's going on with the blu-ray release yeah, there. Uh, Kino is making a Blu-ray. It's really awesome. Uh, it's one of the things that I'm most excited about is to actually hold the Blu-ray of this film after so many years. They did a great job. The packaging is awesome. First of all, it's, it looks really cool. Um, all of our it features a couple of the posters that were designed for us by uh, by Ann Kelly, who's a brilliant designer. There is we did do a commentary. It's uh, Webb and myself. Uh, and it's moderated by Elric Kane, who uh, is a friend of the projection booth. 
And uh, he's also the co-host of Shockwaves, of the Shockwaves podcast for Blumhouse. Um, and otherwise, we have interviews with Jocelyn Donahue, AJ Bowen, and Gene Beaver on there. And a really cool sort of like three-minute super eight-millimeter clip um, of just behind the scenes of The Frontier cut to uh, the amazing score. Uh, that was written by Ali Hanwan, uh, which from footage shot on our set actually by Elric and edited by Elijah Drenner, who uh, produced all of our special features. Well, yeah, Elijah's been on the show as well, and he's uh, quite a great guy. Oh, Elijah's awesome. Which which episode was he on? We did a special on his documentary about Dick Miller. Oh, nice, nice. I like that film a lot. Tell us a little bit about the screenings that you have coming up in Los Angeles. We have two screenings coming up at the Egyptian Theater's Spielberg Theater, uh, which is the another theater within the Egyptian Theater, uh, on November 19th. It's a Saturday. The first screening completely sold out at 7.30 p.m., um, and we sold it out pretty quickly. Uh, and the Egyptian added a second screening the same day at 10 p.m., and tickets are still available for that. So November 19th, 10 p.m. at the Egyptian. If anybody wants to come, I would advise to get tickets ASAP. Uh, and we'll, we'll be there for the, we're, we're going to be there for a Q and A, uh, during the first screening. And then we will introduce the second screening coming into it. We're very, very excited about that and having some LA screenings. Well, I want to thank both of you guys for uh, being on the episode and uh, telling us all about your new film. Uh, can you tell us, is there anything in the future that we should be looking for, or is there any way to follow you and get more information on you? On my end, uh, I, Webb and I are working on a, on a new noir together, on a contemporary, I'm, I'm just going to say it's a contemporary urban noir that we, we started writing, and I have another script uh, out there that I'm trying to get made, which is a uh, more of a Hitchcockian suspense film. That's where I'm at in terms of future projects, which hopefully will happen uh, in the very near future. Yeah, in, in addition to uh, the script that Orin and I are, are working on, um, I'm working on a surreal uh, horror movie, um, which I've been sort of describing as uh, Harold Pinter meets H.P. Lovecraft, and a true crime uh, film as well. Hopefully those will be seeing the light soon. And uh, I have to uh, plug here that Orrin is coming back on the projection booth within a few weeks here. Actually, uh, December 21st, we are dropping an episode on the Lemon Popsicle films. So I'm very excited to talk to Orrin about that, who is probably the preeminent expert on the Lemon Popsicle series. Let me tell you, I am so excited about that one. I am just as excited about talking about Lemon Popsicle as I am about, uh, about my own film. That's how happy I am we're doing it. I'm very much looking forward. Where can folks go to find out more information about the Frontier movie? So first of all, the movie is already available, uh, and you can uh, stream it right now on iTunes and, and Amazon and YouTube on demand. Uh, and otherwise, if you need any more information, you can go to thefrontierfilm.com or find us on Facebook at The Frontier Movie, or on Twitter at, at Frontier Movie. 
Very cool. I will be sure to link over to all that stuff from the Projection Booth website, which is projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about the film, see a preview of it, and get some links over to these guys. So I highly recommend The Frontier. It is a really terrific film. I was really glad that you guys were able to show it at NoirCon, kind of the perfect audience for it. And yeah, thank you so much for making this movie. And thank you, Jared, for coming on and co-hosting with me. So I really appreciate this, guys. It's been a terrific evening. And thank you for distracting me from the uh, these horrible election results. <laughs> thank you, Mike. Appreciate having me on. Yes, I, I will also thank you. It's really uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, to do this, and thank you so much, Jared, for joining as well. It's uh, it's, it's been awesome. Yes, thank you. It's been uh, it's been my pleasure uh, speaking with all of you. Sorry to keep you up so late, Webb. <laughs> yes, I know. It's, it's we have early mornings here. So the election results are horrifying. Yeah. Yes. So really, I haven't looked. Yeah, it's two sixteen to one ninety seven right now. And I will. Donald Trump has a, has a clear path to victory. <laughs> <laughs>